Welcome to Monticello Podcasts, where we look at various aspects of Monticello, Thomas Jefferson, and the work of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which has owned and operated Monticello since 1923. I'm Chad Woolerton, Monticello's webmaster. 200 years ago, this December 2007, Thomas Jefferson was in the middle of a crisis stemming, in large part, from war between Great Britain and Napoleonic France. For years, British naval vessels had been stopping American ships at will and removing British and often American citizens in an effort to recover suspected deserters from the Royal Navy. Things came to a head in June 1807 when a commissioned British frigate, HMS Leopard, fired broadside on the USS Chesapeake after it refused to be boarded and searched, killing four and leaving many Americans crying for war. Then, in November, the British Privy Council issued new orders establishing a blockade of French-held territory, effectively cutting the U.S. off from its trade with the European continent and leaving its ships vulnerable to attack and seizure. Faced with a choice of economic subjugation to Britain or war with her, Jefferson chose a third option, self-imposed embargo of all U.S. naval trade with any foreign power. In this excerpt from a recent talk, Jim Sofka, a former fellow at Monticello's Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies, lists the embargo's disastrous effects and explains why it has become considered the greatest failure of Jefferson's presidency. Now let's just talk before concluding here about the failure of the embargo and why, which I think is what's the ultimate question here. The embargo is a disaster in a practical standpoint. It leads to idle ships, rotting cargo, and irrevocably lost customs revenue. Discontent in New England reaches such a pitch in in mid-1808 that there is talk of secession, the antecedents of the Hartford Convention of 1814. One Federalist congressman, Josiah Quincy of Massachusetts, calls Jefferson, quote, a dish of skim milk curdling at the head of our nation. And that's charitable, (laughs) given Federalist sentiment. Jefferson adopts increasingly draconian measures in 1808, sends troops to the Canadian embargo, favors using the Navy to crush embargo runners, is constantly hectoring poor Albert Gallatin, who didn't even want it in the first place, at his lackluster enforcement, and writes to the governor of New York, Daniel Tompkins, in August of 1808 that, quote, I think it's so important an example to crush these audacious proceedings and to make the offenders feel the consequences of individuals daring to oppose a law by force that no effort should be spared to compass the object. This language, of course, is eerily similar to that that could have been used from Lord North, circa 1774, and no doubt the irony was lost on the president. Now, the embargo does have some effect on Britain, but not much. And the British knew very well that this was going to hurt the Americans far worse than they. The change in the fortunes of Spain in 1808 has the result of opening some South American ports to Britain, which relieves the pressure in lost lost customs revenue and in lost exchanges. And of course, the British retain Canada as a source of maritime supplies throughout this conflict. The United States is spending considerable effort chasing its own tail on enforcement mechanisms, the cost of goods skyrockets in major American cities, and simply encourages smuggling. Now, some of the explanation for this unfortunate events stems from the fact that the embargo was never intended to serve this purpose. It simply was never intended, even by Jefferson at first, to serve the purpose of a long-term strategy. Gallatin wrote to Jefferson flatly in late 1807 that, quote, as to the hope that this may induce England to treat us better, I think it entirely groundless. 
Gallatin argued to Jefferson time and time again that the economic consequences to the United States were frightening, and he wrote that, quote, people may fight, but they will not give up their money for nothing. With this kind of cynical assessment, Gallatin proved that he had his finger on the pulse of the American public far more than the president. Jefferson, while, sees, while seeing war as unlikely, continues to believe, against what becomes all hope, that the embargo will compel British concessions. Now the question is, in the few minutes that we have left, why? Why does Jefferson continue to dig in his heels with failure all around him? Well, this has been assessed several times. Richard Mannix, in his article, makes a sort of psychological argument. Jefferson simply gets tired in 1808. He wants out of office. He's longing for retirement. And all he does is go through the motions and enforce the embargo and leaves Madison to hold the bag. There's some truth in this, certainly late in 1808. But Jefferson is aggressively managing the embargo in American foreign policy in the early stages of this year. And I don't think this entirely explains why he perseverates in this course. Clifford Egan has a much more clever argument by saying that it's not Jefferson's fault at all, it's Congress's fault since they passed the legislation in the first place. Jefferson no doubt would love this explanation, but it was completely false as the embargo was managed entirely by the executive branch and Congress from December 22nd on had proved to be Jefferson's rubber stamp and giving him what he wants. My view of why Jefferson perseverates is twofold. The first is, is quite general and it's borrowing from what the economists would call the logic of sunk costs. That is, even bad investments can be justified rather than admit error. Just as corporations will continue to pour money into underperforming divisions and merger acquisitions in order to justify the initial strategy, Jefferson does exactly the same thing. He's unwilling, he, he dispenses blame liberally in 1807. He blames governors, he blames federalists, scheming merchants, even poor hapless Gallatin, who's given the unlikely, the, the, the poor job of enforcing this, is constantly given hectoring memos on his weak enforcement of the policy. He ignores the advice of anyone, chiefly his European diplomats, who try to advise him as to the state of British opinion. He assumes as early as 1806 at the time of the Monroe-Pinckney negotiation that the Talents Ministry, the Whigs, would provide America with what it wanted without realizing that even Charles James Fox, probably America's closest friend in Britain, considered Jefferson's maritime demands to be on the moon in terms of their scope. Never once in 1808 does Jefferson ever write a critical letter or offer a critical self-assessment about his policy, and never Jefferson never challenges himself, his motives, or his initiatives in putting the embargo forward. Here, we have something that's very similar, not to draw too broad of an analogy, to future conduct of presidents of the United States. Like Lyndon Johnson at the height of the Vietnam War, or for example, the current president with the war on Iraq, Jefferson's language echoes that of constantly seeking more time. As a matter of fact, not to push the point too far, when I was doing more specific research on the 1808 uh, chapter, Jefferson's at the time of the Iraq surge, it's the same thing. Jefferson constantly saying, only a few more weeks, three more months, six more months will justify it, more money, more investment, restricting smuggling, much in the way that you see the current Iraq policy being put forward. But I think the second reason for Jefferson's failure is that he drinks a little bit too much of his own Kool-Aid in the form of the logic of the report on commerce. Jefferson's belief in commercial power leads him to be convinced that reality is what he sees it to be, and that in replicating Napoleon's continental system, he will be able to gain the kind of advantages from Britain that he wants. 
But Jefferson's views of European realpolitik and attempted imitation of classical mercantilism are incompatible, both with weak American power and with the British perception that the stakes are simply too high in the bipolar struggle with Napoleon to offer maritime concessions. Jefferson believes that time itself will become a weapon that will eventually force England to the table. Now, what's interesting here is that it isn't so much that Jefferson is exaggerating American military power in 1807. What he's doing is, in essence, focusing on America's marginality to Britain. A good analogy, I think, that captures Jefferson's thinking is that he behaves like an individual litigating against a large corporation that the demands that Jefferson are putting forward would be merely an irritant in a larger struggle, and just as a corporation might be willing to offer an individual a settlement despite tremendously greater legal and financial resources in order to avoid a, a more complex and distracting lawsuit, Jefferson continues to believe that the British will see negotiation with the United States to be to their advantage. What he does not see is that the international situation of 1808 bears no resemblance to 15 years ago. The stakes for Britain are much higher, the struggle against Napoleon is much greater, and the balance of power could not be exploited so readily. As a matter of fact, I would argue that Jefferson's greatest success, Louisiana, was made possible partly by the fact that it was a more traditional balance of power gambit. Louisiana was, after all, a luxury to Napoleon, something that he could afford to bargain, barter, or sell to the United States in exchange for other advantages. British maritime policy is not in 1808, and no serious British ministry can afford to offer the United States the kind of tangible concessions that Jefferson is demanding. And thus, to go back to my early argument, the irresistible force in the shape of British maritime policy collides with the immovable object of Jefferson's assumptions as to American economic leverage. By the end of 1808, even he was exhausted by the issue, noting to Levi Lincoln that, quote, we have been pressed by the belligerents to the very wall and all further retreat is impractical, and noting to Madison on Christmas Day of 1808 that despite what would be offered as criticism of the embargo, quote, I spared nothing to promote it, something that was certainly true. So Jefferson's embargo expires after complete failure three days before he leaves the White House in March of 1809, and the situation is no better off than it was, as a matter of fact, far worse off for it was for the United States in, in 1806. Now, I'm running a little bit out of time and wanted to get into questions. I the full talk is available at monticello.org slash podcast slash ICJS. Dot HTML. Thanks for listening.